Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Dalbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. And I'm Joanna Mendelshaw. You can find us online and be notified of future shows at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play and download archived editions on iTunes. Today on Creativity and Play, we'll explore how movement, dance, and performance can lead anyone to new insights about listening, decision-making, and the creative process with our guest, Joanna Mendel-Shaw, choreographer and artistic director of the Epless Projects. Plus, we'll discover more about the Equus Project's interspecies performance works with horses and dancers. Joanna and four performers will be featured at the Creative Problem Solving Institute from June 13th to 18th, 2017 in Buffalo, New York, where they will perform The Breaking Ring and lead a one-day workshop on strategic decision-making and a breakout session on immersive play. You can find a link to more details about this at creativityandplay.com. Joanna Mendel-Shaw, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you. Well, there's so much to talk about and so many different things that you are involved with. But I guess for starters, what, how, how did your dance career, dance life begin and ultimately lead to the, the work that you're doing currently with horses among uh, um, other formats of dance as well? But what, what were your beginnings in, in this field? Well, I, I was a dancer starting uh, in my late teens and uh, dedicated myself to a very formal, uh, rather traditional, contemporary dance career, performing um, with a number of different choreographers. Uh, my second job in New York was in a Broadway show with Tally Beatty. Uh, I then moved eventually to the Pacific Northwest and was a member of the Bill Evans Dance Company. So a very traditional modern dance career. Uh, Gradually also uh, began to choreograph and direct a company. And uh, in 1991, uh, moved back from the Northwest to New York City. Um, I've always been a dance educator. I was teaching at NYU, Tisch School of the Arts, and then after that at Juilliard in in the Ailey Fordham BFA program. Again, very traditional dance experiences. And uh, in tandem, uh, began doing uh, choreography for site-specific locations. In other words, moving away from the square proscenium with the captive audience and working in public spaces. I started that in Seattle, uh, with my company and as a faculty at Cornish College. When I moved to New York, I continued that interest, and it eventually led me to a commission from Mount Holyoke College where they had an amazing equestrian team and a dance program. I asked if I could combine the two for a huge site-specific work. They said, why not? And I was just seduced by the grace and power of these amazing animals and came back to New York and began pursuing, uh, researching how I could continue. Uh, Fast forward, we were discovered by some very famous 
natural horsemanship cowboys who said, you might be interested in working with horses without riders. And indeed, they trained myself and my dancers to uh, do to work with riderless horses, horses at liberty. And I became fascinated by the uh, constellation of skills that it took to be that responsive to another species. Uh, so that's a very condensed answer to your question. Though we've had many conversations, I don't think I actually ever heard that place where that surprise, that synchronicity happened that uh, led you to the, the horsework that you're doing. So thank you for sharing this uh, today. Um, the, I, I was uh, fortunate when you and I first met to see the documentary that you did with the, the work with artistic men in Scandinavia and as one example of the many different works you've done with horses and dancers. Can you say a little bit more about that particular piece that people might also be able to uh, find through your documentary? Yes. So uh, through our natural horsemanship connections, uh, we were invited to create a performance work with a company of autistic performers in uh, southern Sweden. We were invited by their teacher who had worked with these group of young men and oh, young one young woman since they were teenagers. They were all in their 20s, and one of the performers was in his 30s. Um, they were all bilingual. Um, autism is not a form of retardation. Uh, these were really smart, tremendously perceptive young people. Um, the director of this company had uh, worked with them on performance work before, and she wanted to choreograph a piece uh, on the site of the historic stone library in the middle of a beechwood forest and invited me. I went to Sweden to meet her and her students and agreed that this would be an amazing site. Uh, indeed, that summer, I took my four dancers back to Sweden. We were partially funded by the American Embassy in Stockholm and a generous commissioning fee from this company. And we created a full evening-length performance work uh, on site. I knew this would be a beautiful um, environment and I brought a documentary filmmaker with me and the outcome was a full-length documentary Hastants Pahodvala which indeed uh, we were in the forest uh, that was on the property of Hodvala Castle and this documentary Hastants um, follows the creation of this performance work from the beginning until it's a very successful performance uh, at the end of July. Joanna, amazing. Wow. I'd love to see the documentary. Haven't had a chance yet. Um, this is Mary Alice. Uh, I wonder, uh, I love your why not that, that got you into this. Why not? And that um, you're working with uh, horses at Liberty, as you say. And um, some of my friends here who work with horses, they also call it that, that uh, horses, they say that horses are all heart and that if we as humans uh, would listen, uh, they're there to help us. So I wonder, um, Joanna, how you take your work or how that work that you've done with horses, your performances with horses, informs your creative work with groups. 
how did you make that transition um, helping groups to learn more about listening and communication skills and decision-making? Um, I think that's a great question. And indeed, horses are nonverbal creatures. Indeed, many people teach their horses verbal commands. But for the most part, they're reading our bodies. And we found as dancers that we had in um, – sort of an intuitive ability to read another sentient body. And that extended beyond just reading people. It extended to reading these animals. And they were so, uh, I'm going to use an anthropomorphic expression here, but these animals seemed so delighted that they had met human beings that were actually physically listening to them. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, we began to develop a constellation of skill sets that would strengthen, uh, sharpen our abilities to physically listen and worked in a studio devising all sorts of uh, kinetic experiences for ourselves and then began teaching clinics for equestrians and then extended that to work with uh, young medical students, extended that to work with therapists and um, community groups um, sharing our uh, devices for exploring our cap- capacity for physical listening. Um, and that some of that is what we'll be sharing at the conference in Buffalo in June. So say a little more about the physical listening because that's one of the key concepts sure. that you've really well, developed of, and taken away. And- one, Right. Well, one of the things that we do with people is um, encourage them to explore how much information we gather with our hands. And so we will ask them to work in partners, and one person will make um, a shape with their two hands. The hands could be folded. They could be in a prayer position, anything, as long as the hands are together. And their partner will use their hands their eyes are closed, to learn that position. And, of course, that's fairly easy, and they learn that quickly. And then we extend it to having them make gesture phrases that they have to learn blind. And what's so astonishing is that we actually learn more through touch than we learn through the hands, uh, through our eyes, rather. Very often the eyes will pick up the what what is the position? What's the movement? But our hands will pick up the quality, the timing, the amount of weight, the uh, sense of duration. And these are all the things that, of course, horses intuitively sense. So it's uh, getting people to realize that they have a capacity for physical listening that extends way beyond their visual sense. Um, other exercises we do are very much about sensing space, moving in a group of people and keeping two people in their line of vision and then creating an equilateral triangle between themselves and two partners. And at the same time, noticing how that changes the texture of movement in the room in general. People find this very fascinating. Um, we try and get people to be able to multi-track. 
I am doing this now, but I am also aware of everything else that's taking place in the room. Another thing that we try and get people to be more aware of is their backspace. Horses are very sensitive to backspace, and um, we uh, do a lot of explorations with people exploring if they can sense another person in back of them. How do they sense that? Um, We encourage um, our movers in our workshops to imagine that they can see through their ears. Um, We do a lot of exploration of how your movement choices might communicate with another person. Um, So that's just a tip of the iceberg. Uh, What I find interesting about this is that I'm using verbal my verbal skills, this is a radio program, to explain all this. But, of course, the the real heartbeat of this information lies in the kinetic experiencing of it. Mary, Mary Alice and I talk frequently because of the work that we do in creativity and play about people's reluctance sometimes to play or move in the ways you've just described, or they say, I'm not a dancer or I can't dance. But you mentioned that you've done work with medical students and therapists and community groups. And I know we've talked before about the work that you also did with engineers at the Naval War College. How do they respond, those medical students or those engineers, to this doorway into creativity and communication and um, uh, I think I should say first, I apologize that my speech is a little garbled today. I've had dental surgery this morning. <laughs> I just want to mention that because I feel I hear myself lisping terribly. Um, I think that when you ask people to play, uh, play is often relegated to child, uh, sort of childhood endeavors. And when you ask adults to play, it feels uh, extremely important to make the assignment very specific. This is what I would like you to concentrate on. So, for instance, with medical students, we had them shake each other's hands. One person is giving the handshake and the other is asked to receive it. The giver must duplicate their own handshake three times, and then the receiver needs to give back what they felt, which is very revealing because often what we think we're giving is not what we're receiving. Um, The exercise, and my reason for mentioning it, is the parameters of that exercise are very specified. Um, With our engineers, we actually did a series of paper folding exercises where collectively two people would use post-it notes to collectively create a design, one alternating with another. Very simple. Uh, Anything you choose to do works. The only thing we ask is that you wait for each person to make their choice so you're not speaking while the other person is speaking, so to, so to speak. In other words, you're trying to collectively build something without any verbal communication. Um, 
we had always uh, done this exercise using the paper completely flat. And here we were at the Naval War College, and these engineers worked in duets, in pairs, and literally built these little villages. It was amazing. And then we had the same exercise with six people collaborating, again, still asking that you wait for one person to add before you add your addition, really asking people to listen in a way, visually listen, um, which I think is really important. Uh, and I guess I need to ask you two at this juncture if all of this verbal explanation makes sense to you. Yes, it does. Absolutely. And and uh, what you just were talking about with paper folding takes us away from, or t- took the engineers away from the verbal. And I'm also taken with the handshaking that reminds me uh, when I practice as a psychotherapist of... Um, partner um, work, um, that deep listening and getting a response back. Did I, did, did I hear what you said? <laughs> did I really hear what you said yes. uh, correctly? And things. Um, but I also, I, as you were talking, Joanna, I um, am, uh, I, first of all, I had some very, uh, in my body, just some really, Deep responses with what you're saying, some ahas coming up for me. But um, I also just was listening to one of uh, uh, my friends who work with horses here and um, how these ears are so sensitive on horses. Um, And also um, we've been doing some talking about the strength of horses and the positioning of the human body with the horse body and people's fear of horses uh, because they are big, um, but yet they give us, and way back in history, gave us so much freedom as human beings. So I wonder right. uh, when you do your work with people, uh, whether with in performance with horses or in working without horses, but bringing that information to the groups, um, how you work with um that sense of bigness or too much or strength and the small the smallnesses or the sensitivities of touch. Yes. Ooh, that's a big question. Um, I know. <laughs> uh I think embedded in that question is the notion of fear and that if a human being approaches the horse with fear they can feel it. And it makes mm-hmm. them very apprehensive because they read that emotion. They mirror us. So very often my first objective is to create situations where if you're new to being with this animal, that you feel safe, that they understand that these are creatures of flight, that are actually more frightened of them Um, that the only time they will get hurt is if they're not paying attention. And we often start with the horses on lead lines so that you do have an uneven um, relationship in terms of power dynamic. The human being is in charge. And start teaching them how the movement of the rope, the halter on the horse's face, deeply affect them with the slightest, lightest touch. 
so that the touch happens in a controlled situation where the human being feels safe. There's a thing in horsemanship where you're trying to set the horse up for success, and when I introduce dancers or people unfamiliar with horses to these big, potentially, quote-unquote, dangerous animals, my objective is to set the human being up for success, actually set both of them up for success. And the best way really to do that is to put the human in control, which sadly says something about our fear of what we don't understand. Um, And again, that sort of goes back to play. I think as we get older, we move further and further away from play. We forget how important it is in terms of using our intuition to process complex information. And um, I think the fear translates into resistance. And so a lot of what we try and do is gently move through those resistance barriers um, again setting up exercises where the parameters are so clear that you cannot fail there's absolutely no possibility of failure there's only the possibility of enjoyment did I answer any of your questions <laughs> you certainly did and I also I heard in your as you were talking, Joanna, a bit about witnessing, because when you're with a partner, one person is doing and the other person is witnessing um, or deeply listening. And um, I often talk about uh, it becomes your story as a witness or it becomes your dance or your song. Um, Can you speak to that, to being the, the... the non-doer, <laughs> the non-active well, one think, in the dance? I think that's a great point. Um, I think you're talking about the art of listening, not listening and figuring out what am I going to say or do in response, but just being present and taking in as much information as you can. Yeah, d- yes. just and being a receiver. And part of the play, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's part of physical listening is not only the speaking, not only the noticing, but also just being present and receiving. Um, Yeah, I mean, this conversation makes me realize the complexity of it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, you've, you've raised so many great themes that for me personally and my creativity work that I, I hear things that resonate with the kinds of things I hope people are able to tap into when they're rediscovering and exploring their creativity in themselves and in the groups that they're a part of. So I'm very excited that you will be part of the Creative Problem Solving Institute next month in Buffalo. And uh, as we briefly mentioned in the opening, you'll be doing a day-long workshop called Strategic Problem Solving, which I think from what I I've heard you describe in our conversation so far today, we'll be touching on many of these themes and helping people actually explore um, through experiential um, uh, workshop format uh, a lot of the concepts that you've just been telling us about. And I, I meant to mention a moment ago when we were talking about medical students and engineers that we also today had a 
um, Hungarian banker sign up for your workshop. So I was very excited to see such a seemingly surprising person, but of course, not so surprising based on what you've just told us. Uh, You'll also be doing a a breakout session on on immersive play and, again, picking up on these themes. But the other piece we haven't talked about yet is you and and four other performers will be doing um, one of your pieces called The Breaking Ring, um, which I know you've also done with some community groups. So I think we've touched on the workshop, so tell us more about the performance, The Breaking Ring, and, and, and what that's about and how that plays into the theme of creativity. Well, the Breaking Ring uh, frames a kind of duet uh, performance form that we've worked on for quite a while. Um, When we began learning horsemanship, we began to learn about different horse personalities and how the strategy for working with one kind of horse, for instance, an introvert, would be very different from working with an extrovert. Working with a submissive animal is very different from working with a dominant animal. And working with a fairly right brain, sort of emotional animal is different from working with an animal that loves to think and figure things out. I have two cats at home, and I have a left brain and a right brain cat. I treat them very differently. So we mm-hmm. began devising a duet form in the studio that would help us practice our strategic thinking. And we call these creature duets. One person goes into an, uh, cir- uh, a delineated circular space and proposes a kind of movement that suggests a behavior. It's not acting so much as a movement vocabulary that might indicate hesitance, uh, a fear of... Uh, moving big in space. I'm describing now perhaps an introverted, fearful character. And someone goes in as themselves and literally tries to find ways of connecting. Uh, The dancer that is the creature is really deeply invested in this behavior and has to respond truthfully. We're not trying to make a pretty dance. We're trying to explore strategy. So the breaking ring uh, frames that investigation, which is delightful at times, and at times it's violent. And then it eventually moves into inviting the audience into a shared experience that's not a creature duet, but is learning through your hands. And what you witness in a lot of the duets that are framed in this piece is that there is a lot of communication that takes place through hands and touch, as well as through spatial sensing, proximity. Um, And so that's basically the nature of the performance. It's possibly more an investigation of research than it is hugely entertaining performance. Um, And it's accompanied by a very... A sparse but informative narration that helps the audience understand exactly what they're watching. Uh, the entire piece takes place inside a 16 by 22 foot white picket fence enclosure. It's not round, it is square, but um, it gives the sense of 
these two creatures or a creature and a person in an enclosed space and um yeah so that's a very uh, cursory description of the breaking ring well thanks for that description and in 30 seconds tell tell our listeners if they're coming to the Sipsi conference why they should come to your strategic problem solving workshop I think that we all have immense untapped capacity for playfulness, for intuitive decision-making, and uh, this workshop is not dependent on words. It is a playful investigation of our potential for play in which every single participant is set up for success and a really joyful and informative experience. So, Anne, on Thank you so much for joining us on Creativity and Play and giving us a preview of what you'll be doing at the Creative Problem Solving Institute. Uh, Joanna Mendel-Shaw is a choreographer and artistic director of the Equus Project, and she'll be leading creativity workshops and performing at the Creative Problem Solving Institute from June 13th to 18th in Buffalo, New York. And you can find out more at creativityandplay.com. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by John Batiste. And you can listen to this show and previous shows again, find more information about our guests, and sign up to be notified about coming shows at creativityandplay.com. And find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you for joining us. And Steve, thank you so much for the opportunity. You're welcome, and see you next month. You're welcome.